0: Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you are listening to the Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast, online at Schwepp.net. Episode 179, The Manichaean Catholic, introducing Augustine of Hippo. Well, Augustine of Hippo, woof, Augustine, Saint Augustine, Uh, someone like Augustine of Hippo, a important Latin church father of the later 4th century, would not normally feature in the Schweppe. Uh, I believe I've referred to him in a previous episode as an anti-esotericist, and we're going to flesh out what we mean by that, but it's pretty much an accurate description of him. It's at least right enough that he wouldn't normally belong here on this podcast, and yet we've been talking about him an awful lot here and there in previous episodes. He seems to be one of those people you just can't get around when discussing the intellectual history of the West. Moreover, by understanding him, we really do stand to understand a lot about the history of Western esotericism, and specifically of its opponents, its enemies. Matter of fact, many of our listeners will be familiar with the thesis put forward most thoroughly and forcefully by Wouter Hanegraaff in his 2012 book, Esotericism and the Academy, that Western esotericism exists in a certain way, at least in modern times, as a kind of rejected other to mainstream ways of thinking, be they scientific, uh, rationalist, so-called, religiously hegemonic, or otherwise. This process of othering, in some of its historical specifics, goes back to Augustine in really important ways. In other words, Augustine's thought and its influence, which was extremely great in Western Europe is kind of a watershed moment for where esotericism is in uh, European history. So we need to talk about that. But that's not all Augie has to tell us about the history of esotericism, and more will emerge in the course of this episode. However, this is a two-parter episode. In this episode, we want to talk about Augustine, his basic life, the due diligence that we like to cover, and some of his philosophical stroke religious Conclusions which are really, really important for intellectual history more generally, and talk about his engagement with the esoteric movement known as Manichaeism, which we've spoken about on the podcast. In the next episode, part two, we are going to discuss Augustine the anti esotericist because he really does take a line against Christian esotericism in a way that was very significant and echoes through history. First let's do the basic biography of the man. Aurelius Augustinus was born in Thagaste, which is today's Souk Ahras in Algeria, a town in the Roman province of Proconsular Africa in the year 354. In Roman North Africa in the far west, you tended to speak either Latin as your first language or Punic or some Berber language at home and Latin in public. Augustine seems to have known very little Greek, even despite the education he got, which we'll talk about. And this was, as we know, becoming more and more common in that part of the world. However, as we shall see when we cover Marcianos Capella, the deeply read Hellenic scholar was not an extinct species in Western North Africa in Augustine's time, but it was becoming an endangered species. Augustine was from a not-posh-but-not-broke-either family. Uh, his dad was apparently a polytheist and his mum Monica, a Christian of some kind. Apparently, his dad converted to Christianity on his deathbed. Uh, perhaps he was trying to cover all the bases, or maybe that's just later Christian um, historians trying to kind of uh, posthumously heal the rift in the family of the great Augustine. So here's a first bit of info that we should take note of. Augustine is to some degree, we can't specify to what degree, raised a christian of some kind we can't specify what that meant in practice either while his mother saint monica in the intellectual history of the church has been rewritten as a sort of paragon of high-level trinitarian nicene orthodoxy this is very very unlikely to have been the case but that being said we don't really know that much about what flavor of christianity she did practice and inculcate in her son Anyway, after some initial education, uh, Augustine's parents managed to scrape up the money for him to go to Carthage and study rhetoric, which he did, and then he set up as a teacher. So he was on his way in late Roman society, right? But Augustine's course of life was far from straight, as we know from his Confessions, a fascinating book, which is the first ever autobiography in the full sense of the term. There, of course, are elements of autobiographical writing already in the Western canon, from Xenophon to Marcus Aurelius and many other examples. People write about themselves, of course. But this was something new. Augustine sat down to do a kind of searching, self-reflective story of his life and intellectual development and sort of comment on it as he goes along. So then I did this, and then I thought this, and this was, of course, a blind alley, and I should have done this instead, like this kind of thing. And thus, a new genre was born. But because of the confessions, we know an awful lot about Augustine's life, and it's pretty interesting. Here are some key points for students of Western esotericism. And there's no point in rewriting all this, since an excellent summary by Giovanni Catapano can be found in the Cambridge History of Philosophy in Late Antiquity. So we're just going to quote from that, but with our usual asides to clarify and link this passage we're about to read with stuff we've been discussing already in the podcast. But before we read this passage, it's important to note that all of this is what Augustine tells us about his intellectual development. So I'm not saying that Augustine is ever lying to us or anything like that. That doesn't seem to be how Augustine rolled. However, I at least get the impression from reading the Confessions of his having heavily curated his life story in retrospect, if that makes sense. So he makes it, in essence, a step-by-step ineluctable journey toward the truth, namely Trinitarian Christianity, as he understood it. But we have every reason to think that this is a retrospective construction of what was going on, right? So without further ado, quote, his mother Monica educated him in the Christian faith. His first encounter with philosophy took place in Carthage in 373, when he read a now lost dialogue by Cicero, the Hortensius, and was won over by its exhortation to love wisdom that is to be a philosopher. Disappointed by the non-classical language of the scriptures, as an aside, this was a very common disappointment. Uh, Jerome, another great Latin father of this period, talks about exactly the same thing. He's uh, expecting to find something sublime, and instead he finds this sort of gutter Greek and gets very uh, cagey about it. Uh, Back to our quote, Augustine was captured by the preaching of the Manichees, who promised him they would explain revealed truth by reason only. Throughout his adherence to Manichaeism, he was in the lower ranks of the hearers. Uh, See our episode 123 on the Manichaeans and their internal social structure. Uh, And isn't it interesting to see this preaching strategy in use among Manichaean missionaries in the Western Empire? As a missionary faith, Manichaeism was very adaptable, as we know. In Roman West Africa, apparently, they went for the rational religion angle. Back to our quote he studied Aristotle's so-called 10 categories by himself in the year 374, maybe in some paraphrased or commented version. After becoming a teacher, he read books on the liberal arts, dialectics, geometry, music, and memorized, quote, many writings of the philosophers, uh, chiefly astronomical books by pagan authors, which revealed to him the untenable nature of the Manichaean myths. His readings during this period included Cicero's philosophic works, And doxographical texts like those by Varro. As an aside, listeners may remember Varro from episode 60 of the podcast. He was a late Republican Roman antiquarian and writer on various topics. He was a mate of Cicero's. Uh, It's a real pity more Varro doesn't survive, uh, as he seems to have been an important source for a lot of early Roman esoteric lore, uh, much of which is now lost. And he was very interested in stuff like this newfangled. art of astrology that had just shown up on the scene and was uh, making inroads among the intellectuals of Rome. Back to quote: Augustine wrote his first theoretical treatise, two or three books, De Pulchro et Apto, in 380 to 381. It had already been lost by the time of the Confessions. He moved to Rome in 383 and to Milan the following year, where he held the chair of rhetoric and abandoned Manichaeism once and for all. Side note, Milan was the western imperial capital from the years 286 until 402, when the Goths sacked her and operations were moved to Ravenna. Milan's bishop, and this guy's pretty important, a guy named Ambrosius, he was bishop from 374 to 397. He was an accomplished orator and a hardcore Trinitarian preacher who butted heads with Aryan emperors, Remember, the Arians weren't Trinitarians. They were subordinationists. They thought Jesus was, because he was begotten, he couldn't be the same exact thing as God the Father. He butted heads with those guys and generally went hard in the Nicene cause. But he's maybe most famous outside of theological circles as the guy who became the spiritual father of Augustine and caused him to convert to Nicene Christianity. I put the convert in quotes and we'll come back to that later. Okay, back to our quote. Despite his skeptical attitude, shaped by the philosophy of the new academy, Augustine attended Ambrose's Sunday sermons and became convinced little by little of the reasonableness of faith in the scriptures. A crucial event in Augustine's intellectual development happened in 386. He read some, quote, books of the Platonists, end quote, translated from Greek into Latin by Marius Victorinus which made him able to conceive of God as a spiritual being and to solve the problem of evil. There are good reasons for thinking that these books included both some treatises by Plotinus, the Plotini Paucissimi Libri mentioned in De Beata Vita 1.4, and some writings by Porphyry, but we don't know exactly either how many or what they were since there's no literal quotation in Augustine's early works the Plotinian and Porphyrian texts quoted in later writings, like the On the City of God, do not prove that Augustine had read them in 386. In any case, it can be said that Augustine had known what we usually call Neoplatonism since 386, and this philosophy was to be the most influential on his thought from then on. End of quote. So, Augustine has had quite an itinerary. Now, he was baptized by Ambrose in 387, and from this point onward, Augustine becomes a committed Trinitarian Christian, goes on to be nominated bishop of the town of Hippo back in North Africa, goes back there, has some visions, gets involved in some important theological controversies, which we'll be talking about. He writes voluminously, basically sets the agenda for Catholic Christianity from then on, in a lot of ways i don't mean to overemphasize his importance but he's very very important in the history of catholicism which of course hasn't been invented yet we're still t- talking in terms of uh, people struggling to figure out what is orthodox christianity he unwittingly also plants the seeds of protestantism because pretty much everything luther and calvin would do was predicated on reading augustine taking him seriously and emphasizing certain bits over the other bits that the Catholics emphasized. Now, of course, they were all reading the Bible, but uh, it's my contention that you can't get Christianity from just reading the Bible. Really, you need a, a lens to make sense of, you know, how Paul and John are supposed to be talking about the same thing. And that lens for Luther, Calvin, and many other Protestants was Augustine. So then, Augustine dies. In Hippo, in the year 430, early 5th century, while the town was besieged by the Vandals, who were yet another uh, Germanic tribe who were about to take over North Africa, Roman North Africa, and set up a successor kingdom, he is said to have died quoting Plotinus. No doubt he was quoting Plotinus in Latin. If you paid attention, there's not a single Greek author in any of his uh, Literary itinerary that we've seen, so he has a very narrow and curated window on philosophy, generally speaking, because he's only really reading stuff that's either written by native Latin speakers like Cicero, or translated by the um, helpful Marius Victorinus, whom we talked about last time. Now, before we get into his writings and thought, let's back up and fill in a few blanks. All these dates. Are running together in my head. I don't know about you, but I think it would be helpful to have a look at the political background, what was going on during Augustine's life. So here we're going to quote another text, that of Marcus from an earlier Cambridge companion. This one is the Cambridge history of later Greek and early medieval philosophy. And this gives a great summary of the life and times of the Roman empire in which Augustine lived. Quote, St. Augustine's life spanned almost 80 years of a period during which the quote, decline of the Roman Empire, end quote, passed through its most dramatic, if not its most decisive phase. Born into the Christian Empire of Constantine's successors, his youth saw the brief pagan reaction under Julian the Apostate. Yay! Followed by the return to Christianity and the ever closer linking of the empire to Christianity under the emperors Gratian and Theodosius I. During the latter part of his life, Roman paganism, which had rallied its forces during the last decade of the 4th century, was rapidly becoming a relic of the past, though it remained a force to be reckoned with. He witnessed not only an important phase in the Christianization of the ancient world, he also lived through some of its gravest military and political upheavals, the military disaster of Adrianople in 378. As an aside, gentle listeners will recall this battle. It was where Valens, the hapless ruler of the Eastern Empire, had had his army and himself wiped out by, an, by another army of Goths and various allies of the Goths. Quote, the division of the empire after Theodosius, the eruption of Vandals, Sueves, and other barbarians into the western provinces of the empire, 406, the increasing barbarization of the Roman armies and of the imperial court, the sacking of the city of Rome by the Visigoths, 410. These are some of the landmarks. The Vandal invaders of his own North Africa had just reached his episcopal city of Hippo as he lay on his deathbed. In an important sense, his life may be said to coincide with the transition from antiquity to the Middle Ages. End of quote. So there we have some context for Augie's life and times, eventful to say the least. Now that sacking of Rome by the Visigoths was mentioned in episode 172 of the podcast. As we said then, one of the effects of this unthinkable occurrence was that it got people thinking, oh, this clearly means that the gods or God, the divine powers, are unhappy with the Romans. What did we do wrong? And some people naturally said, it's got to be this Christianity thing. The gods are pissed off at us for abandoning the traditional worship and converting to this new cult, right? Rome had been doing very, very well in the uh, normal political sense of the term under the old regime when people sacrificed to the gods and, you know, Jupiter was in his temple and all that kind of stuff. And now look at us. Well, this sort of talk inspired one of Augustine's associates to ask Augustine, who is now a respected Orthodox writer with a solid Latin style, right? To write what would become the massive on the city of God, De Capitate Dei, whose 22 books were written from 412 to 426. So, the On the City of God is a kind of massive, sprawling storehouse of theology and sacred history, and quotations from Porphyry uh, on theurgy and all kinds of interesting stuff. And it's considered one—it's one of the most widely read works of Augustine. Okay, enough background. Why should we, as students of Western esotericism, care about this guy? Well, gentle listener. Let me say first of all that Augustine really just is someone you need to know about. I'll just re-emphasize that point, as he has put a phenomenally deep imprint on the thought of the far west. And by the far west, we mean Western Europe, roughly speaking, the the former Latin-speaking provinces of the Roman Empire. So I'm gonna run through a few points in what follows of what I think are key sort of augustine for dummies interested in western esotericism ideas but there's a lot more which could be said Uh, there's been so much written about this man that it's legitimate to talk about an augustine industry in scholarly publishing he wrote a lot his writings have been read a lot and this guy's just massive but here are some of the things that i think are critical for us to know about one is to do with manichaeism one is to do with platonism And then a few other points. So first of all, Augustine and Manichaeism. As we know, Manichaeism was in late antiquity a phenomenally successful missionary religion across Afro-Eurasia. Whatever the specific reasons, and Jason Bidoun's two volumes on Augustine and Manichaeism are a great resource if you want to explore this topic. For whatever specific reasons, Augustine went from whatever kind of Christian belief he held in his youth to a proper conversion to Manichaeism. Except maybe conversion isn't the best way to talk about it. Maybe it is. Anyway, uh, this might have been during his adolescent rebellious phase. Maybe the Manichaean preachers he met were just super persuasive. No one really knows what it was that caught his eye. But he became a Manichaean for about 10 years. Now there's a point to make here, which you will not find in Catholic sources on Augustine. As Guy Straumse puts it, quote, In historical terms, one cannot see the conflict between Manichaeism and Christianity as a conflict between two independent religions. In the Roman Empire, at least, the Manichaeans considered themselves to be Christians, nay, the true Christians, while they condemned the Catholics for Judaizing and hence for being unfaithful to the true doctrine of Christ, end of quote. In other words, it's probably perfectly right to see augustine's religious evolution as a kind of seeking within the confines of christianity for the right christianity not as a quote conversion from christianity to manichaeism and then another quote conversion to what would become known as catholicism so much of the scholarship about augustine is all about this idea of conversion and his sort of retroactive framing of his life as a series of conversions uh it has hugely influenced just the whole idea of religious conversion, but while his eventual baptism by Ambrose and and acceptance of Nicene Christianity does seem to have a kind of conversionish feel to it, the idea that he converted to Manichaeism from Christianity obscures maybe what the Manichaeans were presenting themselves as. Anyhow, much. Has been written on this subject, and we'll have to leave it at that. But as we've seen, Augustine's Manichaeism in the end didn't take. He was a Manichaean for about 10 years, but he eventually went to Milan, heard Ambrose preach, and after having his mind blown by the books of the Platonists, rejected Manichaean Christianity for Ambrosian Christianity. That's not how he puts it, of course. He he puts it as he rejected Manichaeism, the heresy of many, for true Christianity, obviously. His philosophic objections to Manichaeism were very many, and he expounded them in many polemical tracts, but important ones were that the Manichaeans were, in his reading, sort of materialists, and Christianity for him entailed a wholly incorporeal god. Or at least he thought this once he'd had his mind blown by Plotinus, right? He also thought through the problem of evil along Plotinian lines. He basically steals Plotinus' arguments vis-a-vis evil. So evil isn't a positive force of darkness, but it's a kind of a lack. It's a shadow cast when God's goodness is not allowed to penetrate. It's an absence of good. It's not a kind of dark twin of good. It's just good not being present. The Manichaeans, as we know, believed in an active principle of light and darkness. So for them, evil was an existing thing it was real. For Augustine, it wasn't after this uh, intellectual kind of conviction, having read the Platonists and so on. But, and this is a really big but, gentle listeners, we also know that Augustine was absolutely obsessed with evil daimones. And obsessed is a strong word, but uh, if you read his books, you sometimes feel like he's a bit obsessed. I mean, it was normal to be obsessed with evil daimones in late antiquity, but anyway. Any polytheist worship, evil daimones. Uh, any divination practices, daimones again. Even the wrong form of Christianity, daimones. So the world is absolutely full of these corrupt, uh, evil entities, and they are out to pervert you and turn, your, turn you away from the worship of the one true God who is three true gods. So this brings us back to what I was trying to mull over in episode 145, entitled Thinking Through Monotheism, Henotheism, Polytheism, and Dualism in Late Antiquity. If dualism is merely a position statement on theological principles, then yes, the Manichees were dualist, and Augustine was a monotheist, or let's say a Trinitarian monotheist, because we can't just give in and let the Trinitarians get away with their claim to a unitary god which is also three gods without you know poking it a little bit but anyway he's a monotheist but if dualism is a kind of way of seeing the world in terms of starkly contrasting opposing poles of light and darkness good and evil and maybe part of that is really obsessing over the evil well augustine was way more dualist than the manichaeans he rejected at least as far as their thought can be reconstructed. And later, far-western Christianities, especially the Protestant denominations, often have this character. It's unclear among some Protestants whether they think God can actually do anything except save souls for an afterlife in which he will be omnipotent. But demons do stuff all the time. So it's almost like the demons in this world are way more powerful than God, right? Uh, Some of this way of thinking goes back directly to Augustine. It's a caricature of his thought because he, as I say, he argues quite strongly that there is no such thing as substantive evil. Evil is not a substance. It's, It's not real. It's just a kind of shadow. But then he goes on about demons all the time. So it's easy to see how his argumentation and stuff led to this way of thinking and this, the evolution of this sort of demon-haunted world that we find in some Western Christianities. And this leads quite organically to the topic of original sin, something we haven't seen yet in our discussions of Christianity. Manichaeism, as we've said, was in a certain sense a highly optimistic religion. Yes, the battle between light and darkness in the cosmos is ongoing, but the victory of the light is already assured. In fact, the war is won, and we're in like the mopping up phase of the battle between light and darkness. Now, the darkness in man isn't essentially part of man. It's a kind of foreign addition. This idea, among others, is a major reason that scholars who know a lot about ancient Gnosticism tend to want to talk about Manichaeism as a related movement or as Gnostic adjacent or something like that. It's this idea of evil as a kind of parasitic add-on to the human being. And we see this already in Basilides, our earliest so-called Gnostic teacher and earliest Christian philosopher, in fact. And But we see it in many other thinkers in antiquity. This was a very prominent idea in early Christianity. And far from necessarily being the stereotypical world-hating anti-cosmic dualism that people have said is the sort of the essence of gnosticism right it could take that form but it needn't take that form it might take the form of a recognition that we humans are essentially good and divine in fact and we just need to deal with this muck that somehow got all over us for augustine evil or rather the corrupted human will is something we literally inherit <laughs> and it's totally part of what it is to be human it will not and cannot come out in the wash, as it were. In fact, Augustine fleshes out and sort of formulizes the idea of original sin in a really important way, even devoting a lot of attention to the actual mechanism by which humans have inherited, literally inherited, sin from Adam and Eve's original cockup in the garden. You might almost say he's reaching toward a genetic theory of evil, right? For Augustine, humans are just fundamentally ruined in a certain sense. Hence, the need for a freely offered atonement, which is Christ's death on the cross, etc., etc. If this part sounds familiar, it's because this is just basic Catholic theology nowadays. Catholic Christology, Catholic anthropology. Augustine doesn't exactly invent any of this, but he puts his stamp on it at every level. And because he arrives at all this, through a very seductive combination of reading the Bible, introspection and self-reflection, philosophical reasoning, and then mixes it all together in this very, very intelligent and penetrating way and persuasive way, the whole thing has proven rather convincing to millions of people for a millennium and a half. I thus don't think it's an exaggeration if we're speaking very loosely to say something like, Augustine invents the doctrine of original sin. And that that's a pretty important milestone in the history of Western thought, I'm sure you will agree, gentle listener. It also, in my view, makes Augustine way more of an anti-cosmic dualist than, well, practically anyone. The guy thinks the world is a guilt-ridden sea of corruption and nothing humans could possibly do could avail to fix it. It's ruined. Only the supreme god would be able to fix it and he does this by the creative expedient of becoming a human and getting killed so cue uh, catholicism let's say in arguing against the manichaeans and for original sin augustine had to think a lot about human choices will and to put it in modern terms the question of free will and this brings us to the pelagian controversy this was a big uh Theological brouhaha that Augustine was major uh, correspondent in in his period. In our discussion of the origins of free will as a concept that we had with Dylan Burns, you can find that in the oddcast. We managed to locate something like the very first framing of the question of choice and free choice and qua free will, precisely in early Christianity in Clement of Alexandria. So we have loads of Stoic discussions about fate and human agency. But Clement is the first person on record who kind of says, do we have something like free will? The answer is yes. So we have this whole Christian tradition from Clement onwards that considers humans as in some important sense, free agents, able to make unconstrained choices. And the whole salvation theology of Christianity is in a certain sense predicated on this principle, right? To unpack that a bit, if you're saved... By some act of accepting salvation, like choosing Christ as your personal savior, or by knowing some saving knowledge that Christ died for you, however your particular tradition of Christianity frames this salvation, well, the question is, how is that supposed to work? Uh, And it becomes very tough to answer that if you can't choose freely in the first place. So what kind of God would set up a scenario where you have to make a kind of um, intellectual choice of some kind? and your salvation depends on that choice salvation in the sort of afterlife sense but that god himself chooses who gets to choose salvation or know the saving knowledge and who doesn't what kind of god would set up a scenario like that well augustine's god it turns out (laughs) so a rather easygoing humanistic christian thinker based at rome named pelagius Uh, seemingly Pelagius was of Romano-British descent, but he was a, a learned man and a good Hellenist. He was arguing that, yes, it's important that humans convert and accept Christ's sacrifice so that they can be saved. But also, of course, God will judge our actions. So it's important that we, well, do good things. And crucially, it's possible for us to choose to do good things. God knows this is possible. So thus, if we don't choose good things, he knows we're doing that too, and he can judge us based on that. He's a just God, so of course he's not going to judge us for things we're forced to do, but he's going to judge us for choosing to do bad things. No, says Augustine. And this is where things get incredibly weird. No. Based on Augustine's various ideas about original sin and so forth, no action of human beings could possibly have a salvific character. From the vantage point of God's perfection, Everything we do is equally shit. Salvation must, then, depend entirely on faith. Now, this isn't the place to get into the deep questions about freedom and whatnot raised by Augustine in his many anti-Pelagian writings. Um, If you want to check out the Augustine article in the Stanford Online Encyclopedia of Philosophy, that's a good place to start. They have a whole section on free will in Augustine. But here's the upshot, as far as I'm concerned. Augustine sort of paints himself into a corner where he either denies human freedom altogether or allows for it in such a philosophically hedged way that it's not really worth calling freedom. Now, every Augustinian theologian and philosopher is going to jump down my throat here and say, no, he does. Of course, he defends uh, human freedom. He even has a work called On Free Will or On Free Choice. I agree. But... Nevertheless, (laughs) it's freedom that is really, really hedged, and yeah, it's a tough one. Only God is free for Augustine, and this will lead to, far in the future, Calvinist predestination, and in the more immediate late antique future, an attitude within Christianity that humans are basically worthless sludge, whom God will either save or not, because it's not immediately clear on Augustine's account that you can choose to accept salvation, right? Your will is corrupt. So on one reading, he's saying God has to choose you, giving you grace, which will then cause you to choose salvation. And this leads to all kinds of, as I say, weirdness. Does Augustine think humans are free to choose salvation? Kind of. I guess, is the only way you can put it without delving into the philosophy. And when you delve into the philosophy, which is very deep and very based in Augustine's own reflection on the choices he's made. And in in a sense, it's very humanistic because he's saying, you know, there was this time when I was a kid and I stole these pears and I didn't even really need the pears. I just did it to steal something. And we've all had that experience of doing something just for the sheer cussedness of doing it, the imp of the perverse acting in our lives. This is something that Plato perhaps naively says, or Plato Socrates says, no one will ever do that. No one will ever willingly do wrong. It would be against human nature. Of course, we all want the good. And Augustine's like, no, come on, let's be real. We do this kind of stuff. And he's right. But does that mean that we are all... uh, fundamentally corrupt and incapable of choosing to improve ourselves in any meaningful way? Hmm, well, people can go and think about that. Now, speaking of Plato, let us turn from the Pelagian controversy to Augustine and Platonism. We've seen that Augustine himself reports that his encounter with the books of the Platonists, which Marius Victorinus, whom we discussed in the last episode, has helpfully done into Latin— Was an intellectual turning point for him. In what sense? Well, these books, whatever specifically they were, um, in the early days, I think everyone agrees that it must have been some Plotinus. He definitely read Porphyry, he quotes a lot of Porphyry, but this is later on, so it's unclear, as we mentioned earlier, when he read Porphyry. Probably his first encounter was with Plotinus. Anyway, whatever they were, they opened his eyes to how one might conceive of incorporeal realities like the eventual Trinitarian God that Augustine would settle on. Before that, he was something like a materialist, or at least he was someone who thought that one cannot be exactly the same thing as three. We can note here that many Christians in his era believed fervently that not only Jesus had a body, but God himself had a human form. I mean, Genesis does tell us that we are made in his image, so to a certain way of thinking, that just means what it says. God must have a human-like image, but of course more amazing than a human. Anyway, the followers of Origen, for example, who maintained that of course God didn't have a body, these were the earlier generation of Platonizing Christians, and, and Philo of Alexandria makes precisely the same argument in his Hellenizing Jewish Platonist synthesis, that we are made in the image of God in the sense that we possess nous, intellect or transcendent cognition and god of course he is a noose now in our period talking about like the third and fourth centuries in the roman empire one of the ways the originists sometimes got into real trouble and i mean by that physical danger and got beat up and stuff from howling mobs of christians was that these howling mobs were sure that god did have a body and how dare you deny that god has a body (laughs) Um, Anyway, Augustine is going to follow the Platonists on this, and as we know, the incorporealist God would eventually become the official doctrine of Orthodox Christianity. The Cappadocians are arguing for it in the East um, along similar lines, but different lines from Augustine. But of course, they're all also going to say that the Jesus part where God did have a body is not contradicting this this model. So that's one thing that Augustine used from the Platonists that he could kind of uh, take into his synthesis and use as a way of arguing for Trinitarianism and an incorporeal God. Augustine also took a lot of other arguments from the Platonists such that much ink has been spilled about his, quote, Christian Platonism, end quote. Most importantly, Augustine's explanations of how the divine trinity is supposed to work, how three can also be one, draw massively on Platonist ideas about immaterial substance, arithmological number, and so forth. So he's taking what he wants from the Platonists, what he can use. Thus, many of the arguments and beliefs of Augustine can be seen and have been seen as examples of a Christian Platonism on his part, or a Platonizing Christianity, or a number of other ways of putting it. And this has been observed from the scholarly direction, but it's also been observed from the direction of various anti-Augustinian forms of Christianity who want to criticize the bishop as not being a true Christian because he's actually espousing Platonist doctrines. And this will come up in the Reformation period when anti-Christian Platonism becomes a a going concern. It all gets really complicated. And since everything in Augustine's work is put through this endless process of biblical and philosophical and self reflexive, auto-ethnographical, and doctrinal hermeneutics. And remember, this guy's work was sort of always a work in progress. Late in his life, he even published a work called Retractionis, in which he went back to 90 or so statements he'd made in earlier works and kind of nuanced them and said, Oh, I got that a bit wrong. Let me let me put it how I would put it now. So he's he's very much a work in progress sort of guy. Anyway, we can say that, yes, there are tons of Platonist ideas in Augustine, But we have to add that they are, for the most part, radically mutated by his personal approach to Christianity, and also add that his thought is full of some ideas which can only be called anti-Platonists. And here we should say that the the more dominant up until this point strand or lineage of Platonizing Christianity, namely Originism and its descendants, and I would include the Cappadocian Fathers here, also mutant. Also, not Platonism in the sense of something that a Plotinus or a Iamblichus or a Proclus would accept as philosophy or as good philosophy. Nevertheless, very, very different from what Augustine does. Augustine is kind of sui generis, and this must be partly because he's a bit of a genius, a weirdo, but also because he, where he's living and what he has access to, he just doesn't have access to the bulk of Platonist writing. Um, The Platonists for Augustine are right about God's incorporeal nature. They're right about his sole responsibility for creation and his total goodness and unchangingness. In his Epistle 118, he wrote a load of letters among all his other writings. He even indulges a little bit in a sort of speculation, wondering since the Platonists are the school of thought which most closely conforms to the true school of thought, namely Augustinian Christianity, well, Plato must have learned this stuff from some revealed source. He might, and then he thinks, like, who could this have been? It might've been the prophet Jeremiah, because of course, we all know that Plato went to Egypt and learned there. So that's where Jeremiah was hanging out, but but the dates don't quite work. So Augustine's like, no, it can't have been Jeremiah. But anyway, he has to know the whole like burning bush story from uh, Exodus, where God introduces himself in the Greek version as, I am the existent one. <laughs> because Plato talks so much about the existent, to on, being. Augustine leaves it open how Plato might have learned these things, but makes it clear that he couldn't have just been doing original philosophic work. He must have got it all from Moses or from some follower of Moses. However, as we have seen, Augustine thinks the cosmos is just rubbish, something no philosophic Platonist who had read the Timaeus, and that is to say no philosophic Platonist ever, would ever possibly affirm. Um, You just don't get Platonists saying that the world is rubbish. Augustine also maintains that the legit Platonist entity, the incorporeal god, somehow became flesh, an idea which serious Platonists wouldn't even bother trying to refute. They would just think of it as a crazy category error which made no sense whatsoever and was also kind of blasphemous. Augustine himself says that he found the doctrine of divine incarnation turpe, shameful, until he somehow came to realize how profoundly true and so forth it was, which somehow blew away the cobwebs of all those rational arguments he'd been wasting his time on. (laughs) So that sticking point of completely incorporeal God that also becomes completely corporeal in some sense, that you can call maybe an anti-Platonist sticking point for Augustine. So here and elsewhere, Augustine reveals the most interesting and baffling mix of really acute philosophical mind, also appallingly naive and misinformed worker within the philosophical tradition, and I for one find it really hard to put my finger on what made this guy tick. One minute he shows these utterly insightful and innovative flashes of brilliance, Showing such a degree of self-knowledge and understanding of human nature that you think, damn, this guy really is the more human face of Platonism, right? And then the next minute, he's denying human freedom, unless God condescends to grant us freedom by an act of grace, which we don't deserve, which of course would mean that it isn't really freedom in any normal sense of the term. And he's reflecting on the nearly all-encompassing power of demons to control us and the world, thus out-manichaeanizing the Manichaeans, Right. At any rate, there's a lot of Platonism within Augie, but to me it reads as a dark mutant form of Platonism. And that's when we compare it to the thought of a Philo, a Clement, an Origen, or the Cappadocian fathers. So that brings us to the end of our introduction to Augustine. Now, I'm very, very aware that I have not done justice to this thinker, but I hope I've done justice to some aspects of his thought that are important for us here as uh, students of western esotericism going forward i also hope i've given maybe some tantalizing um hints that this guy's thought is really complex we're incredibly blessed to have such a huge body of writing from him and especially to have the confessions because it's an innovative work in the autobiographical genre which augustine basically invents but it's also just a damn good read, and uh, and it's an amazing... If you like autobiography as a uh, genre, read his. It's the first one. It's one of the best ones. It's been blowing minds uh, for a millennium and a half. But now, gentle listeners, we get to the real stuff. Because this episode, with all its free will and original sin and stuff like that, can be seen as, you know, okay, it's important intellectual history, but it's not really that directly relevant to western esotericism or is it in the follow-up episode part two you're going to see that it definitely is because in that episode we're going to discuss augustine the anti-esotericist and it is here maybe that among other things the the study of western esotericism can contribute the most interesting new perspectives on Augustine. I mean, if you want perspectives on Augustine as a Catholic theologian, I can recommend about 47,000 thick volumes on the subject. But if you want perspectives on what's interesting about Augustine vis-a-vis esoteric Christianity and uh, esoteric religion more generally, well, we'll have something to say about that next time. But until we get to that, stay like all the uh, movements within Christianity that Augustine will blanket condemn as heretical and uh, stay esoteric.